Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army STA Patrols Unit through the voices of veterans who served in its ranks. Today we're talking to Lee Chapman, and what we'll be talking about on this one is the Balkan tours, both Bosnia and Kosovo. In this episode, we'll cover the batteries' involvement in both of these operations in which we deployed, either as individual patrols, troop size operations, or as a battery. These continuous deployments into the Balkans span from 1995 to 2000. Finally, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, Lee's choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Lee, over to you. When did you join the battery, and what drew you to it? So I joined the um, I joined the battery in in the early nineties. I think I think my first uh, sorry the, the the patrol course or selection as it was back then that I did was literally the the, the first one after the battery had come back from the Gulf. The, so the first Gulf, so crikey, thirty odd years ago. Um, but you know prior to that, I joined the army at you know the sprightly age of sixteen. Uh, in nineteen eighty five, I joined a thing called the Junior Leaders Regiment Royal Artillery, which to be quite honest, um, you know in Thatcher's nineteen eighties. Uh, life was was very different, you know, and opportunities clearly were, were different. So the army was pretty much where I was always going to go, having been a, a pad brat. So my dad was in the army and I grew up in Germany in the Cold War anyway. So it pretty much all I knew. And so off I went, uh, to be quite honest, you know, they, they grabbed you on day one as a scruffy little 16-year-old and pushed you out a year later, pretty much brainwashed that, you know, you were there to be a future regimental sergeant major. And then so straight after junior leaders or, or a few days before we left, um, you got lined up on the square and, you know, pretty much uh, in those days, it was all about whatever sort of county you were from as to which regiment you went to. Uh, and because I was a pad brat and uh, my last couple of years of secondary school were back in back in England, so in Lincolnshire. So I ended up joining a regiment called 50 Missile Regiment, Royal Artillery, who at that time were the uh, the Lincolnshire and Humberside Gunners. I knew nothing about the regiment. Well, I thought I knew nothing about the regiment. The irony was that when I got posted out there, it actually happened to be the regiment that my dad started out in. So uh, so there we go. That was a bizarre a bizarre sort of twist of fate, I suppose. And I suppose there was a place called uh, Menden in uh, in Germany. And again, this is the height of the of the Cold War, I suppose, in the mid eighties. Uh, British Army, the Rhine, which when I got out there, um, and like I say in sort of nineteen eighty six, uh, I think you know, the British Army, the Rhine alone was one hundred and fifty five thousand strong, and it, it, you know, and it was just a literally a different beast. You know, arguably life was was very simple. Uh, there was this thing called the Iron Curtain, and all the bad guys were one side, so the Soviet Union, all the good guys were the other, under the guise of of NATO, which you know, British Army, the Ryan was was part of it. So anyway, so I got posted into uh, to my first battery, which was uh, 19 Gibraltar Battery Royal Artillery, and I got posted into a thing called the uh, the Special Defence Group, which um, I can only explain as a per, per missile battery. So 
as a regiment, uh, they have a thing called Lance, which was a battlefield tactical nuclear missile. Uh, to be talking about battlefield nuclear missiles today uh, seems quite bizarre. But but of course, back in the 80s, you know, we, we had literally nuclear missiles everywhere. You know, everything from the big intercontinental ballistic types and down to, like I say, Lance, which was an American missile system of which the UK had them. And I think off the top of my head, you know, these things had a, a tactical range of about 75 to 100 kilometers, mm-hmm. which, you know, even the notion of firing a nuclear missile in those short ranges nowadays is, is, is pretty much bizarre. I, I was in a 109 regiment when I first went to Germany. And in each 109 regiment, you had one gun, yeah. the NSI gun. It was the uh, the nuclear gun. And so you think 70K is a short when they were talking about a 155 <laughs> nuclear, tactical nuclear weapon. Yeah. You'd be able to see it going off, and, yeah, and so it was. Uh, it was a bit of a pistol gun. It'd drive forward as far as it can, fire it, and then they would try and re- withdraw. But obviously, it was always going to be ten, fifteen k's. But it's I mean, only where they could overcome the sheer weight of numbers. Yeah, 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 forces, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said, I joined this troop called uh, the Special Defense Group. So, within each of the missile batteries, uh, and I think from memory there were there were sort of three, four, four missile batteries in the regiment. Um, each each of those batteries had a troop, uh, and those troops were sort of structured along the same lines as a as an infantry platoon, to be quite honest. And our role was was pretty much, uh, I suppose, the clues in the title, the defence of of those missiles and the launchers uh, of which, in in the way that they worked, the the battery was split into various troops. You had a troop that responsibility was for uh, a thing called the MMA, so the main missile assembly, so the rocket effectively, and then another troop that was responsible for the warhead. Uh, and again, you know, the whole sort of Cold War, you know, the troops would never really get together until it was a come to a prearranged location, uh, normally in. Um, either a forest block in the middle of Germany somewhere or or a village or a farm that had been taken over uh, and defended. And then again, the, the, the two parts of the missile would be mated together. Uh, and then that complete missile uh, would then go off to its firing platform. Uh, and again, like I say, you know, the uh, special defense group, that the, we did everything from um, escorting the missiles uh, in their various states defending the, the sort of the locations where they were built and, and hidden. And, you know, we would sort of convoy escort and all this sort of stuff. But again, to do that, most of our stuff was, you know, very infantry tactics based. Mm-hmm. So much so that my my personal weapon for the first three years was the G- GPMG, of which when I then sort of promoted to, to Lance Bombardier, the dizzy, dizzy heights of, um, you know, I commanded the sustained fire role GPMG SF for the, for the troop. So, uh, so yeah, quite a bizarre, quite a bizarre organisation when you look back at it now. Yeah, well, they had to do pretty much the infantry courses, at infantry school in Brecon, didn't they, Lee? I think, from it yeah. rightly. Yeah, yeah. So, much... I mean, uh, yeah, we so we we used to do um, all your normal sort of gunner courses, and then a whole lot of infantry stuff on top. Uh, and as a junior NCO, a lance bombardier, uh, I got sent away down to uh, the school of infantry to do. Uh, section commander's battle course or junior brecon as is referred to uh, which is quite interesting because of course you know when a random gunner cat badge bloke turned up at the school of infantry and all these color sergeants in fact i think my, my platoon uh instructors at the time one was a royal marine a falklands veteran one was scots guards a falklands veteran um and the other guy bizarrely was an exchange officer who was a, a u.s uh ranger um, and he'd been in uh, Grenada and Panama, so so of course for then a, a gunner to turn up at the School of Infantry, it was all a bit uh, a bit weird. But um, 
but yeah, I went through the same course, the same process, uh, passed that, etc. And um, and then on completion of that, went back, went back to the battery to crack on, sort of thing, as it were. But sort of rewind the clock slightly. My first exposure to Special OP Troop, as it was back then, uh, and obviously you know through its various stages, now four seven three Special OP battery. So I was a gunner in nineteen battery in the Cold War in Germany. Uh, anyone that sort of served out in, in Germany at those those times, remember, all you pretty much did was go on exercise. So, yeah, I was on the on a course, again, some random woodblock in Germany. And I remember, we didn't really know what was going on, uh, but we got sort of pulled into this woodblock off of whatever we were doing. And uh, there was a demo set up. And it turned out to be a couple of guys, uh, well, a patrol actually, from then OP Troop. And they, they, they split us down. Uh, and the day was broken down into two parts. Uh, the first part was a um, sort of survival period where they were teaching us some of the basics of shelter, fire, water, food, you know, and all that good stuff. And then in the afternoon, it was a sort of equipment demo. I think in some of your earlier podcasts, you've mentioned just the fact that, you know, this unique organization that no one really knew about had this aura over them. But even just to see some of the Arguably, when you look back now, basic equipment that they had, but the way that they were allowed to adapt it and use it mm-hmm. uh, very differently, you know, it certainly twigged my attention. And, and coming from a, you know, although having a gun and cat badge, coming from an, an infantry role, it, it certainly twigged my uh, my interest. So that was my first exposure of then OP troop. So I went, uh, we went back on the course, finished final exercise, whatever. Um, and lo and behold, uh, they gave me top student and I was promoted to Lance Bombardier. So we get back, back to work after a weekend off or whatever it was. And uh, within the first few days of being back, I tried to find out a bit of information about this thing called Special OP Troop uh, with, with no real success. And then, you know, I went to see the BC, the battery commander, and said that I wanted a posting to this organization, at which point he said, no chance. You know, I've just promoted you. Uh, I'm going to get some work out, you know. Um, and then this went on for a couple of years, to be honest. I think the next thing that happened, and, and I can't remember how I actually got in touch with the then troop at the time, but uh, next thing, I got this pretty basic, probably even just like a sign of A4, to be quite honest, that, that effectively said I'd been accepted to go on a pre-selection, which was effectively a kit list, a time, and and a grid reference in the middle of some you know forest in Germany. Um, and I think it was, you know, they stipulated on the on the paperwork that, you know, don't be early, don't be late, et cetera, et cetera. And so you turned up with this, you know, your Bergen effectively and your, your belt kit pack to survive a week uh, in a woodblock in Germany with a rifle. And um, yeah, I just remember getting lined up on this on this track in, in, in the middle of wherever we were in Germany. And um, yeah, pre-selection started, which was, you know, to be polite, uh, probably a taster of things to come. You know, and it was a, a bit of a round robin, everything from testing your, your physical endurance uh, to a bit of mental endurance, I think, just by sort of sleep, food, and, yeah. you know, whatever deprivation. And I think it culminated for the last three days of just being sort of thrown together and put in what we were then told was an OP, clearly. You know, when you went on the course proper, you learn how to do that eventually. But, and then, so, yeah, it was just, we were ragged, to be quite honest, for a week. Yeah. Um, and at the end of it, uh, we all got lined up on this track. And, and they just sort of went along the line and went, yes, no, 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 yes, 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 no. And basically, if you got a yes, that means you could go on the course proper. Yeah. Um, thankfully, at that point, I was a yes. So uh, I'd, I'd survived the uh, the pre-selection. Went through the, the time and tested uh, selection course. Yeah, and I joined, joined the battery, which by that stage, like I said, you know, we'd just come back from the, uh, the Gulf. There was the whole uncertainty over the end of the Cold War. 
the sort of stay stay behind OPs so the Mexis was all you know up in the air. We, we, we pretty much knew that you know we weren't going to fight how we'd been fighting for the last forty odd years of the Cold War. And then that whole journey started, I suppose, of which I was privileged to be there, uh, as were as were you two. About you know wh- where were we gonna gonna take this organisation, this capability, yeah. you know, and you know, arguably that constant fight for for getting rid of the um, that sort of pseudo pseudo opinion of the of the place, I suppose. You know, what were we for? What were we gonna do? Who were we gonna support? How were we gonna do it? And and again. Yeah, and I think that's where we come into the Bosnian piece because I really think that between sort of 91 after the Gulf and when you joined, Lee, to 95, that was very much a limbo period for us, trying to find a role, trying to justify our existence. Obviously, there was a Northern Ireland tour that we went on, a conventional Northern Ireland tour uh, in that period. But I think the the Bosnian War was the start of the troop getting out to the Balkans and demonstrating its worth and different roles yeah so we'll move on to the main subject of the pod now we'll start with a bit of background to the conflict in bosnia i've tried to simplify this as much as possible because those who know the balkans know that is a very very difficult history to get across it even makes northern ireland look quite simple so the bosnian war took place in bosnia and herzegovina in the 1990s and started on the 6th of april 1992 following a number of violent incidents earlier in the year The war ended on the 14th of December 1995 and the main belligerents were the forces of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina and those of Herzeg Bosnia and the Republika Srpska. And these are proto-states led and supplied by Croatia and Serbia respectively. The war was part of the breakup of Yugoslavia, one of the sort of the dividends from the Cold War ending. And following the Slovenian and Croatian successions from the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia in 1991, the multi-ethnic Social Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was inhabited by mainly Muslim, Muslim Bosniaks as well as Orthodox Serbs and Catholic Croats, passed a referendum for independence on the 29th of February 1992. I told you it was complicated. You might want to be Wikipedia on this as we're going through it. <laughs> <laughs> Political representatives of the Bosnian Serbs boycotted the referendum and rejected its outcome. Following Bosnia and Herzegovina's declaration of independence, which gained international recognition, the Bosnian Serbs, led by Radovan Karadic and supported by the Serbian government of Slobodan Milosevic and Yugoslav People's Army, mobilised their forces inside Bosnia and Herzegovina in order to secure ethnic Serb territory. The war soon spread across the country, accompanied by ethnic cleansing. And I'm sure we can all remember the mass graves and the sort of concentration camps with people starving inside them, very reminiscent of World War Two. So as Kev said earlier then, 473 Battery had personnel deployed in Bosnia from 95 to 2000 initially, and this was from starting off as single persons to act as unit observers. But from 96, this was increased to six-man patrols as part of IFAR, I-4, which international... I can't even remember what that stood for. Can you remember what IFAR stood uh, for? Yeah, it was yeah, Implementation Force. Because again, it was designed because it went from the United Nations peace to NATO, uh, yeah. with that extra NATO. Yeah, it went from peacekeeping to peace enforcement. Peace enforcement. That's right, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So during this time, patrols were deployed as FOO, Ford Observation Parties, and supported British, Canadian and Malaysian commanders, and other tasks included covert and overt OPs. So Lee, you deployed to Bosnia. Can you just give an overview of sort of what you did at the time? Yeah, so 
uh, well, before I do it, it's interesting. I mean, you, you just mentioned there that I think the first person from the battery to to deploy uh, out to Bosnia in the very early days was the was the battery commander actually, because yeah. um, I remember a guy called Gary Donaldson uh, got pulled away from the battery, um, which is unheard of, you know, as a as a command element to get pulled away as a one-man sort of team effectively and he went out on un as a whole like you say um un monitor um and i know he ended up in some quite sticky situations especially around uh around strebinitsia but uh but there we go um yeah so i think i i deployed um just as we were moving from the i4 piece, so the implementation force, to the S4, which was the stabilization force, again, just under the, the same banner as NATO. So I deployed in early 97, I think it was. Again, you know, headed up, a, I was patrol commander, heading up a, a six-man team. Um, and originally, we went out there, um, again, because we were joint fires or forward observer qualified. We went out there. I think our actual title at the time was we were the uh, the Commander Royal Artillery's Foo Party, um, but of course, you know, like all of our journeys and stories, you know, we were always more than just a Foo Party. Um, we lived in a place called, or lived and worked in a place called Sipovo. Uh, Sipovo, uh, well, where we lived is where the sort of resident light gun battery used to live, live and operate from, and uh, it was a well during the you know, the wars it was used as a as a mine factory and we ended up living in the cellar so um you know we had a bit of isolation for when we were doing planning and all that sort of stuff but uh but that's where we were like i say we went out there as the uh the commander royal artillery's food party what that what that sort of gave us arguably was a bit of a gold card to be you know a young sergeant with a with you know heading up a six-man team to have the um the ear of the commander royal artillery in bosnia to just effectively go around the whole area of operations and clearly we were given you know some sort of directed activities to uh, to achieve um you know what we'd end up doing was um each part of the uh, ao was breaking down into battle group areas within those battle group areas were your traditional foo parties so you know uh, artillery observers uh, we would go and link up with them uh, they'd take us around their aos uh, we would sort of look at the sort of lay down of you know, targets and or potential targets, choke points uh, if needed, uh, and of course, you know, understand uh, the ground from there. Yeah, we ended up, you know, in the in the British, in the uh, Canadian, uh, in the Czech areas, uh, all over all over Bosnia. It was great. There we go. You know, pretty much um, the idea was that we we blended in as much as possible. Um, you know, for all the right reasons. You know, we we wore exactly the same as as all the other troops in theatre. We had two. Unmarked Land Rovers. I think the only difference was that, um, as we found out one time, we got pulled over by the RMPs who used to do these sort of random spot checks just to, to verify who you were, where you were going. You know, the only difference was that where your traditional foo party would have sort of a straightforward comms fit radio and some real basic optics. You know, we had a whole suite of radios, including satellite um attacks at and um you know this vast array of optics so uh that was the only time you really knew that we were different and of course we never advertised the fact you know we we conducted a lot of uh discrete activities you know a lot of it would you'd just see this overt presence but of course um, we would be doing some discrete surveillance on probably a different sort of target set altogether so but yeah it was great to be honest like i said as a young sergeant just cutting around 
you know, we we got tasked on more than more than one occasion by senior officers in theatre to go and do some bespoke four seven three battery type taskings. One in particular, I always remember there was this uh, this village name escapes me now, but you know the, the sort of the NATO presence in that area was all about getting these displaced people back into the village. And I think it was a Muslim village that had been fought over several times throughout the years of the war um, between the Serbs and the Croats. And every time one faction would move out, they'd seed the whole place with mines uh, and booby traps. And then, of course, you know, the inevitable would happen when the, uh, the original villagers would move back in, you know, there'd be mine strikes and all sorts of things. So we got quite heavily involved on, on one particular operation, assisting with that, you know, and and, and literally trying to uh, not so much, well, yeah, keep the factions apart, you know, and try and rebuild this this uh, this place. Um, we also ended up doing quite a few surveillance tasks, which we would build up uh, the pattern of life. Uh, we'd remain eyes on of a target for anywhere, you know, from days to weeks, invariably weeks, which would then lead to uh, to raids by sort of NATO special operations forces. And this is all in, in against a thing called PIFWICs, which was persons indicted for war crimes. So regardless of which factions they were, uh, Serb, Croat, Muslim, etc., you know, we would build up the whole target pack, remain eyes on, uh, and then again, like, allow a strike operation to go in, of which you know subsequently they'd be you know taken through the sort of international sort of criminal courts process. Um, and I know there's been some quite high-profile ones in, in in recent years. And another one in Bosnia that we we had uh, quite a, an exciting task, I suppose. Um, so there was a report of a of a mortar that kept being moved around a particular AO, and again it was firing onto various villages as they were trying to, to repopulate or rehouse all these displaced people and um, various technical assets at the time. So mortar locating radars and acoustic sensors, for example, would pick these things up. But of course, they would only ever pick up the thing going bang um, from its point of origin and then bang again at the point of impact. Uh, and were they just fire on civilians or reoccupying these villages to scare them off, Lee? Is that what the, yeah, the, pretty much. Yeah, like I say, everything from a, a you know a mining, reseeding, uh, every time that they they wore booby traps to you know a particular faction firing mortars into into the village as as the civilians were moving in, so we got tasked to basically go and find this this mortar position. Mm. Um, so, and again, you know, I, I sort of really heart back to the fact that you know I was a a young sergeant, you know, with a, a well trained team, and uh, we were just given the free reign to to go and find this thing. Clearly, we'd we'd done some sort of you know initial sort of planning of the battle space from, you know, aerial photography, uh, maps, intelligence reports, all this sort of stuff. When we narrowed it down and, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, went on a great big target recce to find something. And then once we found it, uh, again, similar to the, the Piffwick stuff, you know, we'd we'd put in an OP, get eyes on it, report it, and then coordinate from there, you know, a strike op for, uh, for NATO forces to come in and... Um, Remove the threat, which they did, um, and, and got rid of the, uh, you know, got rid of that particular, like say, the mortars at the time. I think I think it's worth saying that <clears throat> what a lot of people don't realise is in '96, when obviously the disagreement because NATO had then stepped in and, and did a number of NATO tasks against um, uh, ground targets using air and then moving troops in. That there was a there was a continuous 
friction between the factions. There was continual, and still is today, but there were some some very, very um, sporty moments out there for, I think, all the patrols that went out there and all the, all the NATO troops. It didn't stop. It got a little bit more... They were a little bit more sensitive to how they were doing it and a bit more discreet, but they continued on with some... Um, some of their their actions against their perceived enemies. You know, again, some of the listeners might not realise, but you know, this is the um, this is the mid nineties in the middle yeah. of Europe, and and I think everything. I mean, you know, just the the mass migration of various you know refugees and displaced people at the time had never been seen since the Second yeah. World War, and and also Bosnia and Croatia parts of it. You know, they had some of the largest man-laid minefields that had ever been seen. Yeah. You know, there's one one down in the south of Bosnia, a place called Livno, yeah, Livno Fields, which I think we Livno all ended up sort of yeah. tip, tiptoeing through or near at one point. But, you know, these things just went on for miles and miles. So, yeah, it's a bizarre, you know, bizarre sort of period in, in Europe's recent history. So, uh, a lot yeah, of score yeah. settling went on after it as well. You yeah. go into villages and people had been shot and killed overnight. Um, yeah. it's, it's retribution. I mean, it's horrendous. It was, yeah, it was horrendous war in Europe, and the, the people now probably don't remember or have forgotten how you know extreme it was at stages. It was it was on par with the Second World War in a, in a smaller area. Colin, obviously, you did a tour out there as well in '98. Yeah. Tell me about that. In the area where, well, I was in the area where Lee's just mentioned, Livno, and I went there in 98. And again, very similar role. I was in charge of a six man patrol in the forward observation or foo role. And we were attached to the Malaysian battle group there, uh, just us on our own. And there was an American LO there, which was quite handy because he used to give us a bit of top cover. And talk about the cultural differences in armies. Every morning we had to go for the battle group commanders stand up and I would go there representing the, the FOO party and the American LO would be there. And on occasion, it wasn't unknown for the CEO to slap round his ops officer in front of you when the, they had something that had gone during the, the night. He'd actually physically assault them in front of you. So it was um, not something you were used to seeing in the British or American armies and me and that American officer used to talk about it quite a bit. So this this folded after a bit and we were withdrawn, but I was quite lucky in that we were, for admin purposes, under 19 Regiment. And uh, the BC of one of the batteries there knew what 473 Battery could do. And he gave us a number of covert OPs to do. And it was mainly watching for arms shipments. We did a couple on a factory where they were suspected of shipping arms out. And uh, basically we ran ourselves. So we had a four-man uh, team in a base and two of them would be there to help guide the QRF and there was any trouble and then normally we just deployed in two-man OPs. And I'll go back to what Lee was saying, you know, about giving a lot of responsibilities as a young sergeant. I mean, I wasn't particularly young at the time, I was 30, but I think this is where the battery maybe took what was happening for granted a little bit and didn't capitalise on it because this was expected of you. So we were running these covert OPs and uh, General Delves up in Banya Luca, who was the commander of British forces, they got to hear about this. And General Delves was ex-Hereford, SAS. He'd fought in the Falklands. And I was told I had to fly up to Banya Luca to brief him. So off I jumped in a helicopter, flew up to Banya Luca, uh, 
brief general delves who basically turned around and said to me, what optics, what cameras you got? And I said, we, are, we don't have a lot. We've got some basic kit. And he turned around to he's the major with him and said, get him what he needs, go out, local purchase, camera kit, all the rest of it. And he said, and by the way, you're going to go and you're going to be attached to the Green Jacket Recce Platoon and you're going to start doing OPs with them. So we went down to the Green Jacket Recce Platoon and I think it was Gorni Vakouf they were. So we moved to Gorni Vakouf. And that was difficult because you can imagine, going back to what you were saying, Lee, about turning up at the School of Infantry, gun a cat badge. I turned up at the Green Jacket Recce Platoon. They'd just done two years cop in Belfast. And we get told, you're having these gunners come in and being part of you. To be fair, the lads were very good. The senior NCO, the Recce Platoon sergeant, was less accommodating. And he barely spoke to me for the whole time we were there. He really resented us being there for some reason. Um, so I was given the first task of planning and controlling an op where it'd be a joint Royal Green Jackets and 473 Battery op. There'd be five OPs going in to overwatch all major routes in and out of the town of Dravar for a week. And again, this is to do with movement of uh, suspected criminals, war criminals, and also arms shipments. So the Green Jackets supplied four teams in hours of the fifth, and I was the what they called, from a cop platoon perspective, the controller I was given the op, I was in charge of the op. I think this is for two reasons. Firstly, if it went pear-shaped, the Green Jackets could blame me and pass the blame on to the gunners and walk away with the reputation intact. And also, I think it was to see what skills we had. It was interesting to see that the Ranger skills, we thought that having been in a cop platoon, their skills would be you know, really, really top-notch. Yeah. And they were. But there were some aspects that surprised us. So when I was given the orders for the deployment, I got a few worried looks when I said we were going in for five or six days without resupply. Now, seemingly in the cop, they had been things like they'd have hot flasks, flasks of hot brews taken in of a night time. Yeah. Uh, and things like that. So, totally again, totally different way of operating. Yeah. We weren't just used to it. So when I said, no, we're going in proper hard routine. Yeah, cold it was, routine, isn't it? Yeah, cold routine, no resupply. It raised a few eyebrows. We were quite lucky, though, and the job was success. We did subsequent ones from that. And basically, the fallout from that was when uh, General Dells formed the Dismounted Reconnaissance Unit, which endured as a capability until UK troops left theatre. But going back to what Lee said, you know, I was on the phone back to the UK saying, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing. And I just don't think they got it because you were just expected to do that. And I really do think it was probably a missed opportunity for was, the battery at the time to get, gonna, get yeah, right in there. I was going to say the same thing because I, my tour was 96 and we did exactly the same thing for the Dutch and for um, someone else. We sent the reports back saying what we were doing. Again, they missed that opportunity. They didn't see the importance of the Balkans for our future, perhaps. And actually, we were going to be, we could have took over as a cop sort of role for the Falklands. Yeah. Like Northern Ireland. And that's where you... You influence at the early stages, you shape it, and actually you become this asset that nobody will deploy without. And I do think that perhaps our hierarchy did miss that window of opportunity because it wasn't just a one-off. Your tour was in 97, your tour in 98, the tour in 99 carried that on. There was four years of um, a lot of covert operations and a lot of covert work at a high level. In, in probably a more challenging environment than Northern Ireland. Yeah. 
So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for, for that, going back to what Lee was saying about the minefields, I mean, yeah. part of the recce's that we were doing for the job round the Varas, we had to go on our bellies with prodders, mine prodders, and actually prod yeah. clear lanes yeah, into yeah, yeah. the OP positions. Yeah. Uh, and again, the comms is very difficult. You know, Bosnia's like very mountainous. Uh, line yeah. of sight comms are extremely yeah. difficult. So a lot of it was taxat. But taxat back then was that massive radio set with the, <laughs> the, um, the, the unfolding umbrella. Do you remember that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not also, handheld jobs, they were massive. And also the opposition, they would think nothing about bringing an armoured vehicle up and using it against a, a building or an OP. They had no qualms. There was no, oh, we won't do anything. They had no qualms at all about using their weapon systems, their vehicles and all the rest of it to find you. You, you were up against you know, a well-trained army with some good equipment. Moving on slightly then, um, there was a peace agreement. The tensions continued in Bosnia. And then in 1998, the Kosovo campaign started to, 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 um, to emerge um, to the conflict that you know, people remember in 1999. So moving on to that phase... Uh, again, Lee, you deployed to Kosovo in '99. So, as you did with Bosnia, an overview of that that tour, please. Yeah. So again, you know, the whole Kosovo thing for those that are not are not really aware, um, it was just a it was part of the continuation of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, which, you know, the Balkan, uh, sorry, Bosnia was, well, arguably the start point um, after after the death of Tito several years before. So yeah. Um, Kosovo, you know, arguably fought over uh, with, you know, the predominantly Albanians, Kosovars and uh, and the Serbs. Um, but I remember it was very early in 99, probably around about late January, early February. I think the balloon went up and as an organization, 473 Battery always ready. Um, and I remember we just got very little detail. Uh, and I think in, in a heartbeat, you know, a troop... Flew out to uh, flew out to Macedonia at the time, and it was carnage when we got there. I remember there was snow on the ground. Um, we landed. We then got bussed by some bizarre civilian buses um, <laughs> into this old. Well, we thought it was an abandoned uh, Macedonian artillery camp, yeah. um, but I think it was actually occupied, and it was just it just emptied it. Yeah, it just emptied it, and you know walked away, and we moved in, sort of thing. And I remember we, we we'd all got there. There was you know, hundreds of us there sort of thing from various organisations. Lee, sorry, can I just jump in? Sorry, I, I don't quite understand or I missed it because I wasn't in the battery this time. Was how, What size was the deployment? Was, did it, was it a couple of patrols? Or yeah. So, element or? so this, was a, this was a troop, so a troop of four patrols and, and I'll talk about the fourth patrol in a minute. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was just a troop, so four patrols headed up by a young captain um, and he had uh, a sergeant just sort of shadowing him and a couple of signalers. So I think, what, probably 30 of us all up, if that. We went out there. We ended up in this um, abandoned uh, Macedonian camp. Uh, it, there was snow on the ground and, and it was, you know, it was carnage because no one really knew what was going on. We just sort of got out there that quickly. And I think even as simple as things like food was, mm. was an issue. Because, you know, the, the chefs, the military chefs were just having to go downtown and buy whatever they could. And I think for three meals a day for quite a few weeks, it was pretty much bread, pasta and potatoes was pretty much, you know, the, the staple diet. Uh, but, yeah, so there was a whole load of, you know, unknowns. And as always with these things, you know, the political appetite to commit troops, you know, there's a certain point where, you know, you've reached a, a sort of 
a go no go type line and you've crossed it so as always we were always constantly listening into the world service over the hf radios that mm. we had because it's pretty much the only way we could uh communicate back to the uk and also via a thing called porter's head radio which you know which was a the old and bold over hf you could dial in uh, back to the uk on a certain frequency uh, porter's head near bristol would reorient its antennas you could effectively link up on a phone back in the uk but anyway that aside tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So we always knew there was a lot of political tensions going on in the background. And I think even quite early on in the sort of February when we were there, there was this, I think what we termed Operation Certain Death, which was pretty much the patrols were just going to lift up, fly forward, sit and hold uh, or observe into into death while sort of NATO um, drove up the road, which, funny old thing, is pretty much what happened later on the summer anyway. So, so like I say, for the first few days and weeks, it was all about sort of sorting kit out and, and just, you know, having some sort of shakeout training. Uh, I remember there was helicopters available at the drop of a hat. We did a lot of stuff of, you know, drop-offs, pickups at night, just sort of shaking out uh, RTTPs. And um, and there we were. And then we got some, we got some retasking orders. Uh, Kev was there as well. Uh, and we were told to push to the border of Kosovo, of Macedonia, uh, Macedonia-Kosovo border. And of which I think, again, to understand the context, there was, there was a whole raft of different, uh, military forces out there under different missions. So we went out under a NATO mission. There was already a standing United Nations mission out there. Mm. The French were out there doing their own thing. Because I remember we literally bumped into the French Foreign Legion on the border one time. Um, like the French doing the wrong thing, is it? <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were they were pretty grumpy when we appeared. Well, we actually compromised them. I think they were French Foreign Legion, but and then there was this organisation called the OSCE, so the Organisation for Security and cooperation, cooperation in Europe, in Europe. Yeah. Um, and they were just sort of driving around Kosovo doing things. So it was really complex at the time. So like I said, we got we got orders to push up to the border. You know, we proper made the French moody because we compromised them. Got over that. You know, there were certain parts where we could go, we couldn't go. So of course, the places we couldn't go, we went in at night and, and all this sort of stuff to get some eyes on. And we ended up in in effectively a an overt stance, but as always, conducting some discreet or covert activity, which was pretty much overwatching or looking into Kosovo, uh, into the Presovo Valley, I think it was, um, which was all the fielded forces, Serbian forces were there, you know, all their artillery positions, uh, anti-air uh, air defense systems, etc. And effectively, our task was to to observe. Simultaneously, the NATO air campaign started, and um, we used to watch all the air uh, and even cruise missiles, I think, at the time going in. Mm. And then we would watch the reaction of the Serbs and then report back. And, you know, even just their AAA would fire up at all the aircraft going over, which, of course, as soon as they started firing and we could see the tracer, what a great target indicator for us to to observe and report back and just build up that whole that whole picture and go from there. So and I think at one point, bizarrely, um, 
myself and Kev's patrol were the furthest forward British troops for the whole of the yeah. contingent out there. Uh, and bear in mind, the initial the initial contingent out there was um, then four armoured brigade. So it was all about this big, heavy armoured brigade uh, with lots mm. of you know experience of riding around the German plains that arrived in through Macedonia and up into Kosovo sort of thing. And they were in assembly areas. And it clearly Wait, can I just jump in? Sorry, yep. just, I think it's an interesting thing for me to point out. I think one of the dividends from the Cold War that the battery's been lucky to hold on to is the fact that we have sergeant patrol commanders. And this isn't commented on enough, I think. I mean, the reason sergeants led normally in the army, like a, a conventional FST fire support team, or back in the day, a forward observation officer team, was led by a captain. And the reason our patrol started off was the let them be sergeants because the main reason an officer is there is to brief other officers. And because of the yeah, stay behind yeah. role, you wouldn't need to brief officers. So they were happy for sergeants to be patrol commanders. And it's always surprised me actually that we've managed to retain that sergeant patrol commander as opposed to having an officer in there because yeah. what you're talking about now, I've no doubt that you are starting to brief, as I had done during my stint in Bosnia, you're starting to brief senior officers and and H headquarters and that sort of thing. So I think it's a an interesting point to point out. Yeah, yeah. And again, like you say, we were building up this whole picture. Uh, and I think on more than one occasion, either both of us, Kev, or separately, we got lifted off the ground to go back and brief and, and all this sort of stuff. And then, um, again, where we now, we're probably in the sort of mid to late spring of 99 by now. And uh, then 5 Airborne Brigade turned up in theatre. Mm. Um, and again, the political situation was still ongoing. You know, we were just cracking on, doing our thing, uh, looking over the border, doing stuff. And I remember we got called in uh, or pulled back effectively to it was some near Skopje, which was the the sort of Macedonian airport. But we ended up in a in a vineyard. Uh, that's what springs to mind. It was quite close to the border, and Kevin and I got sort of pulled in. And as you can imagine, we've been living out in the in the in the boonie for a while, so we were a bit dishevelled or whatever. But we ended up outside this makeshift uh, fire brigade headquarters, and then. We sort of got called over to a Land Rover bonnet. Someone put a map down uh, and a load of uh, PF, so Pathfinder platoon, turned up as well. And I think at the time there's got a random Hereford geyser as well. But And yeah, basically someone said, right, the Russians are coming uh, and they their ambition is to go and take uh, Pristina Airport. And so, again, I think, Kev, you probably did the same laugh at the time. But okay. they went, yeah, basically, your two patrols, mine and Kev's, plus... Pathfinder platoon and these kind of random Hereford guys, you're going to fly forward, uh, capture Pristina Airport and stop the Russians coming. <laughs> and again, I think we had that same laugh, but, you know, it was one of these proper, again, going back to your your, your point earlier, kind of, you know, we were just sergeants. We had a captain troop commander there who was running in and out of, you know, five brigades, five airborne brigades uh, headquarters at the time, getting updates. But there was very little information. Um so basically, and the next thing we sort of turn around, and all these Pararedge guys were turning up, just dumping ammo with us because basically we were told to empty our Bergens, fill them with ammo, um, and of which I think it turned out that you know every other man had a GPMG and a Bergen full of you know linked ammo, and those that didn't have a GPMG were carrying a rifle, yeah, 94, 94 and the ninety four well. anti tanks, yeah, and. Um, we just sort of looked at each other. There's no imagery, no real mission, no real orders. And it was just like, yeah, just fly forward and stop the Russians. And we were like, wow. It's um, going to be rock, rocks drift all over again. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, like you say, you know, it was, 
at that stage of, of my career, certainly it was like, wow, you know, I, I finally made it. This is my, this is my, whatever my raw grit almost. Um, so I remember we then sort of picked up all this ammo and these Bergens and like I say, GPMGs and 94s. And we had to go into this vineyard where the HLSs had been cleared. And, um, of course the world's press was there, including, uh, K80 from Sky yeah. News at the time. And you can guarantee wherever there was trouble, she was there. So we knew someone was going to go down. And then, um, we sort of got on these helicopters. We were on a Puma and, um, it was a baking red hot sort of early summer now. We just sort of sat there, you know, first of all, the, the helicopters were turning and burning, then they'd turn them off and we'd just sit there and then they'd start up again and we didn't really know what was going on. And this went on pretty much all day. And I think at one point we just all got out and laid underneath the helicopter. They turned it off uh, just to get some shade or whatever. But then, you know, it turned out that, and we, and we didn't we didn't realize until very late on in that day, I think it was probably near enough dark when someone said stand down. But it turned out that uh, General Mike Jackson who was the head of the sort of NATO forces on the ground at the time, had accordingly had this chat with Tony Blair uh, back in the UK that, you know, there was no way he was prepared to start World War Three <laughs> over some some Russians, you know, driving, because they were driving down from Bosnia, because yeah, clearly they right. had an influence in that area. Um, uh, he said there was no way he was going to start World War Three over an airport, and the Russians could have it. So again, you know, like I say, it was all bizarre, and we got stood down very late at night, um, I think in true style, we just sort of, sort of laid there, getting our head down. I think we'd by this stage sort of repacked our Bergens again and then got told, you know, with a quick heads up set of orders. And the next thing we knew that, you know, tomorrow was D-Day, uh, which was when we were going to then fly forward again with Pathfinder Platoon. Um, what did the Pathfinder guys think of these random non-airborne guys attached to them, Lee? Were they, were they pretty well cool with you? Or yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah, because- there's no... Nah, I don't think they cared at the time. Nah, they, nah. They, everyone was looking at the initial mission, which is go to the Rush, face the Russians. I don't think they really cared who went with them, just long as nah. more people. <laughs> nah, exactly, <laughs> just more ammo, yeah. Um, and I think through various um, exercises and courses and experiences beforehand, you know, we'd all done the similar sort of advanced force type training anyway. So it's just that they purely supported uh, then 5 Airborne Brigade and today 16 Air Assault Brigade, you know, and and the battery then and today supported, you know, divisional and, and everyone else really. So, but no, there was no animosity. So, yeah. So the next thing we got this order is that, you know, tomorrow was D-Day. Um, and then, like I say, we got recocked. Um, we got put onto, uh, so Kevin Mines patrol, a bread of mine, another patrol. Uh, sorry, I mentioned earlier, there was four patrols to start with. So as the air campaign started, it was um, one of the guys, uh, Animal, his team had to, recock and go back into bosnia uh, because we all the way up to this point we'd had this standing commitment in bosnia bosnia hadn't gone away so you know a, a, a troop of four patrols the air campaign started they pulled one patrol off us to push that back into bosnia so that left us three mine kevs and, and another one um and then again here we are um one of the patrols had been pushed up into the mountains to look into the deep so we're sat on this puma again which was called chalk four uh you know and uh that was as simple as it was. All the PF had got onto these um, Chinooks. Again, the world's press was there. And then there was a whole sort of delay uh, because we had to wait for some uh, attack helicopters to turn up because at the time the Brits never had uh, Apache. But 
Uh, I think it was American Apaches that turned up to escort us in. So we, we, we all took off. It was very early in the morning. Uh, I always remember we, we took up, uh, took off, uh, flew over this uh, massive refugee camp. Uh, and so you sort of had, we were heading north, you know, in, into Kosovo, over the mountains. On the left, you had this massive refugee camp. And then literally lined up on this single track road, you know, from the south going north was pretty much the whole of NATO with um, four armoured brigade, the Brit armour, just lined up one after each other pointing towards the border. Um, so we took off. I remember we had the headsets on. It was one of those classics where the door gunner was hanging out one side. You know, all of our burgers were dumped in the middle. There was no sort of seat belts or safety or all that. And I think he, he said something like, you know, if it all kicks off, I'll shoot out this door. You lot shoot out that door. And I think that was pretty much the, the pre-flight brief. Yeah. And it was as simple as that, I think, from what I remember. Yeah, um, it was. And then I remember we took off. And I think we had the in-flight headsets on as well. And next thing, we just started hovering on top of these mountains. And uh, I think it was, I can't remember which one it was, one of us, Kev, but we had to remind the pilot that, you know, downwash from helicopters can set off mines, you know, because we had the experience from the, from Bosnia and places like that. So he, he he sort of hovered for a bit longer. And I think one of them shouted through one of the air crew that the whole thing had been scrapped. And we were like, really? And then, of course, the helicopters turned back towards where we'd started from, back into Macedonia. We flew back over the same the same NATO convoys, the same refugee camp, which by this time, all the refugees were starting to sort of come out of their, you know, sort of big white UN tents. And, you know, we thought, oh, here we go. You know, another damp squib, it's been turned off again. And the next thing, you know, one of the air crew just shouted something like three minutes, you'll be on the ground. And so we just sort of spun back around again, flew straight in low and fast. All the helicopters got to a prearranged point. They had overwatch from the Apaches. We all split. And our our Puma with was sort of Kev's team and my team. I think there was some random firing on the way in as well. I can't remember, but yeah. And literally, next thing, you know, we're throwing Bergens and and people out the out the door. Uh, the Puma took off. The Apache stayed in the Overwatch, and uh, and there it was, definitely silent. We were in Kosovo, um, and the idea was that Kev and my team. We sort of stayed together as an eight-man team for a while because uh, we stopped just short of a uh, an abandoned village. Yeah. But again, from memory, a load of women and children came out, and, and because people had been sleeping outside the buildings, and through a bit of, I think I could speak a bit of you know squaddy German from the good old days of you know Dortmund and whatever. And right, so you're, you're asking for a beer for, for a beer and a bratwurst. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were quite confused about, um, but that and I think and again one of the lads had taught himself some you know really basic Albanian as well so but anyway we'd established that uh, obviously the men folk had either been taken away weeks months beforehand by the Serbs or had gone away and joined the the UCK so what was you know referred to as the Kosovo Liberation Army um, so it was just women and children and they were afraid to sleep inside the building in case the Serbs came and all that sort of stuff and anyway we sort of found out you know spoke to them they gave us a bit of int you know, as to the places to avoid, the routes not to take because of mines and all this sort of stuff. And then remember, we just ended off tabbing off into this big forestry block um, as as a team of eight at this point, the two patrols. And I don't know, about an hour in, I think the lead scout went down on one knee and everyone thought, right, it's going to kick off big style. And we came across a, a sentry point. I think that, again, UCK, the you know Kosovo 
militia Kosovo Liberation Army. And um, yeah, there was there was a bit of a Mexican standoff. Thankfully, uh, they never shot at us, which was nice for a change. Um, <laughs> and again, we established from them who they were. I think they guided us through for another bit. And then we got to a certain point where a prearranged RV, where both patrols split off. Uh, and then again, we had to go and establish OPs uh, and, and look for Serb troop movements and formations because the idea was by now as part of the uh, the peace accord was that you know the serbs should be leaving uh, clearly it wasn't as straightforward as that and then um yeah so there we were in our ops reporting eyes on all that good stuff and, and clearly pathfinders that they were in a you know similar uh, area to us doing the same sort of thing uh, eyes on uh, and then the idea was that once we'd I think we flew in about 25 Ks ahead or something of the Kajanic defile. And then, uh, well, we didn't realize at the time other than over the radio, but clearly it was all over the world's press that, you know, the whole of NATO literally drove up the road, which was a combination of para, I think it's one para and the Gurkhas literally either tabbing straight up, well, the Gurkhas tabbed up to clear all the tunnels. Uh, one para sort of pepper potted in, in helicopter lifts and then the armor followed all the way up up the road. So, yeah, that was us in Kosovo. A couple of days later, three or four days later, I think we, we then both got retasked. I got pulled. We went off, uh, bizarrely, north of, of Pristina Airport or in the area of Pristina Airport to get Overwatch. Again, we come across this village, which, you know, is all sort of smouldering and the Serbs had just basically fired tank rounds into all the houses as they left and there was some some mass graves that were still freshly dug and and you know again women and children just ma- you know appeared from nowhere sort of thing and again we were in a very overt stance on this this task and um, we'd passed some serb formations uh moving and convoys uh, and they were all very jubilant uh they had a particular sort of three-fingered salute which was um effectively it meant brother serb uh, and they were very jubilant because they saw themselves as the victors, not as the uh, not as a defeated army. So yeah, we pushed out. All these civilians came to see us because they thought we were this conquering force, all four of us. Um, and uh, <laughs> and then they wanted Land to tell Rover. it. Yeah, in the Land Rover, yeah, with a big Union flag on the top, uh, so that the A10s didn't, you know, mistake us or anything like that. So yeah, it was all very bizarre again. And then next thing, all these. Um, young and old men all turned up in various you know uniforms and weaponry and all this sort of stuff and again it turned out to be the local uck this guy claimed to be the um the commander you know he took me and richie we went off on this patrol which was we knew something was up straight away because the first thing they did was cock their uh, their weapons um, and off they went sort of thing so we followed them and we went to this place where the Serbs had just pulled out. There was no one there, but um, yeah, and we stayed there for probably about another week, I think. Again, just pattern of life, all that good stuff in an overt stance, you know, collecting information, which we would then feed back to become intelligence. Uh, I think we did some weapon seizures at one point, um, a bit of a standoff again, but um, but yeah, there we go. And then I think, so that probably a couple of weeks in by then, and then we got pulled into Pristina by this point, all the armor had sort of pushed in and beyond Pristina. Ironically, NATO was looking after the Russians that had gone into uh, the airport in the end. I think they put a 
Gurkha battalion in there to protect the Russians in the end and, and give them food and water and all that sort of stuff. So it was all very, very bizarre. Um, like I say, you know, and we keep referring back to that fact that, you know, we were just sergeants that were heading these teams up in the in the middle of this complex, you know, war in, um, in Europe, uh, dealing everything with, you know, Serb field forces on one end of the spectrum to displace civilians and, and whatever on the other end. So certainly never forget what we got up to. I think we then got, we got recalled into an old bus station on the outskirts of Pristina. The sort of artillery group that we'd been affiliated to were there. We got sort of resupplied uh, food, water, etc., uh, and got some retaskings. I think at one point I got orders for a, an OP, which was supposed to be just sort of like five days to go and watch a, uh, a UCK headquarters on the outskirts of, of Pristina. That then ended up into something like a, a six-week task, from what I remember. Um, we ended up pushing into an urban area on the outskirts of the city, looking in. Uh, again, it was a discreet task. So overtly, you know, people knew we were there. But of course, we'd be overtly looking one way in activity, pointing in one direction. But all the real stuff, you know, was actually, as you alluded to earlier, camera lenses and whatnot, looking at the target and, and collating that information. By this point, it was one para. One para had become the literally the ground holding battle group in the middle of Pristina. Uh, and they were doing, you know, and they were the right people, I'll give you the time. Uh, they turned Pristina into. Belfast or Londonderry in the 70s, you know, and they proper got a grip of the place. They had a, a, an information operations campaign where they were putting leaflets out to say that, you know, we're the Red Devils and we are here to, you know, to, to secure the place and keep you all safe. But of course, you had this whole micro conflict in Pristina, the capital, where you had Serb uh, civilians and enclaves still, you had Kosovar abelians in their sort of various parts of the, the city. Um, you know, various factions were going around booby-trapping civilian properties. Uh, most days there was contacts going on. So it's still a very complex place to be. And then from memory, Kev, we ended up in a, as part of an OP matrix uh, yeah, in the middle, right. in the the middle high, of Pristina. High, yeah, high, all the high buildings had a... An OP Overwatch again, very much like the Northern Ireland model, which is to dominate the ground. Yeah. Um, as Lee was saying, uh, the Liberation Forces, KLA, UCK, uh, some of them were not um, some of the criminals, and the rule of law had broken down completely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, and then I think by this stage now, it's probably probably late summer. You know, I remember one night there was a big, a whole load of celebratory fire in the middle of Pristina. All the locals had come out with, you know, in cars and flags hanging out and, you know, people celebratory firing out of some roofs, which was always interesting because uh, a lot of them forgot that when you fire in the air, that bullet doesn't stay in the air, it comes down somewhere. Um, but again, they were just celebrating the fact that NATO were there. I think Tony Blair turned up in the middle of Pristina to give some sort of, you know, we are NATO. I think by sort of mid, early, early to mid-September, we then got pulled out uh, and flew back to UK. Uh, and that was our sort of first trip out to uh, out to Kosovo, and then you know you didn't have sort of you just, we went on a couple of weeks leave and all that sort of stuff, and then it was Christmas and uh, bizarrely we had an exercise before Christmas. Of course we did, we cracked on back in the UK. I then got sent out 
uh, on New Year's Day out to Brunei to get with the team to go and do the whole Jungle Warfare Instructors course, which was great. So a couple of months out there. And then we got pulled back about a week early because what I didn't realize while we were in Brunei was that the head shed from the battery had then been called out to Kosovo again. So this is early 2000 now to go and look at a, a, a complete battery deployment because, you know, the, the dynamics were the same. But the situation different in terms of rather than looking for fielded forces, i.e. Serbian primarily, you know, this is now all about filling the gaps for that surveillance and target acquisition piece. And again, going back to some of the stuff we did in Bosnia was the whole looking for, you know, criminals and persons indicted for war crimes uh, and all that sort of thing. And then again, like I say, I think by Easter that year, so within six months of being back in the UK from Kosovo the first time, we got banged straight out there as a whole battery this time. And again, the whole raft of tasks that uh, that the battery got up to. And I just remember that, you know, we were constantly deployed, you know, we'd be out on a task for what we thought was a few days. It would invariably end up being a few weeks. Uh, we'd come back in, pretty much get a set of orders and then and then bounce back out again and that was pretty much you know all of 2000 i think you know the year 2000 so yeah i think really you know that's my my memories of the balkans you know certainly well certainly kosovo for those two years like i say i just keep going back to, back, back to the point where as a sergeant or a group of young sergeants we were given all this responsibility it was all about our reputation it was about the battery, the capability, the organization finding its feet after the Cold War and life after Mexis. Lots of people were then starting to understand who this formerly secretive organization were. And more importantly, uh, I think Connor said earlier about that whole cat badge bias that, you know, all of a sudden a load of blokes with gunner cat badges could do this thing uh, and do it well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and our reputation, you know, was, was sound. And some of the stuff that we did in the early and mid days of both Bosnia and certainly the early days of Kosovo, you know, then set the conditions for follow-on organizations to continue the thread in in the Balkans in later years. I mean, I remember ending up as a as a staff sergeant, ending up down in Warminster at the uh, the, the light roll recce division. And I was teaching people, you know, tactics, techniques and procedures to go out and do the stuff that we were doing, but they were going out to the Balkans as a formed unit, as a subunit. So yeah, our reputation, you know, went from strength to strength because of our experiences. I think it's fair to say that the Balkans were probably the, the saving point for the battery when they were looking for a new role, option for change. Balkans came in. We were able to show the agility of the unit and the fact that we would learn quickly and bring new skills in, help formulate these these specialist reconnaissance units specialised in those particular theatres of operations in Bosnia and Kosovo. And if you can do it there, you can do it somewhere else. And I think one of the important parts about all this is we were cheap. We were cheap oh, at yeah, it. Yeah. We get a lot of bang for the buck as well yes, because yeah. we're able to turn quite quickly. We had that mindset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, like you say, you know, and for a, for a few sort of locally purchased cameras and, and, and you know, then wet film and, and whatever it may yeah, be and some yeah, of the kit yeah. that we have. Because, you know, I think certainly the battery, you know, we've all experienced of various, you know, similar organizations from other international armies. You know, the Americans is always a good one. But I think where the battery's always been a step ahead is it's not about the equipment. You can buy all the fancy equipment in the world yeah, and yeah. give it to the people. It's actually, it's the, 
it's the soldiers and that yeah, time definitely. that time spent in training and it goes back to the, the patrol course itself you know 13 14 weeks as it is now i think but yeah it's a long old course but that's where that investment is made early because and i think general stone said you know on his initial sort of interview right at the very beginning and when he created the organization there is no substitute for the mark one eyeball no and if you put a well-trained you know brain in between that set of mark one eyeballs predominantly as it was in our case or is now still you know the rank of sergeant that's making those pretty important decisions on the ground for a commander yeah. and, and when i say for the commander as in those decisions we were making feeding it up the chain of command to one two-star organizations yeah yeah pretty uh pretty special oh thank you very much lee that was, that was fantastic and uh we're now moving on to you know the, the, the usual part where we do our desert island dits in which our guest picks their favorite book film and luxury item so lee what are your choices yes yeah, so in terms of uh book again i've, I've recently uh, re- you know reread it it's called uh, it's called panzer leader and it's about heinz Guderian who was a, a Prussian army officer, but effectively he was the, uh, you know, the, the, the creator of what we see as modern modern armoured warfare or combined arms operations today. A professional army officer was never sort of part of the whole Nazi party or anything like that. Uh, and even at the, at the end of the Second World War, when when all the sort of tribunals went through, you know, he was, he was cleared of any, any sort of associations with that. And ironically, his son ended up as a senior army officer in the Bundeswehr. But yeah, it just it's an amazing book. You know, he saw some experiences in the First World War, developed uh, in that sort of fallow period when Germany between the wars were not supposed to be creating uh, arms and munitions. But he was responsible for creating all these tactics. And I mean, just, you know, he created what is Blitz, you know, what we all refer to as Blitzkrieg. You know, those successes in France, which, you know, in in no time at all pushed the BEF onto the beaches, but also those early days into Poland and arguably to the gates of Moscow are all credit to that man there. So it's an amazing read, really uh, highly recommended. The film? Yeah, film. Uh, I mean, it's a classic. You know, you can't be a good old war film, but uh, The Longest Day, um, you know, I mean, that film traditionally comes out your Christmas and Easter and all that good stuff. You know, they certainly don't make films like that anymore, but uh, I, I could literally watch that every day of the week do you not think it looks a bit crap now compared to things like Saving Private Ryan Lee you can't be watching that every time no no exactly you can I mean uh, I mean just look at the actors alone you know that are in that film the fact that most of them were you know were serving predominantly in the war anyway so uh, some of the experiences they bought you know even just the equipment they had was all you know because it was made early 60s I think so it wasn't that far after the second world war that it was made in the first place which is an epic film um, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, outstanding. And I think my, my sort of luxury item, it's got to be, well, it's a combination. It's coffee, effectively. You know, I've been to some amazing places in the world with the army, but we have this obsession of everywhere we go, we take with us some of the nastiest tasting coffee uh, in Compo. But yeah, so to me, it's coffee with a nice camping cafetiere. Uh, you can that, tell you're an officer now, mate. Where's it all gone wrong? Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. So yeah, <laughs> coffee There's the answer. <laughs> okay, Colin. my rec- yeah, my recommendation is my war gone by. My war gone by. I miss it so by Anthony Lloyd. And Kev, you've read this one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So he's an ex. I think he was light infantry. He actually served in Bosnia, 
and he's uh, currently defence correspondent for the Times, and he based a lot of the experiences in that book on what happened in Bosnia and Chechnya. So he discusses the war, the adrenaline rush we got from the war, and he actually became a heroin addict in London after he got back to sort of the relaxed environment of the capital. Uh, he did the traditional sort of war correspondent thing that he did in Vietnam, i.e. he just jumped on a plane and got over there and chanced his luck with no press credentials and not working for anybody. And he was not one of those photographers for sitting in a briefing room. He had to be in the thick of it. And he started off by being a, a war photographer. And he got a break when the French correspondent for the Telegraph was wounded by a Claymore mine set off by Croat forces and asked Lloyd to fill in and uh, send out some dispatches for him. So Lloyd agreed and he started his first job as a journalist and he's put on a retainer by the Times. He also has done a couple of interesting things. It was him that found Shamin, Shamina Begum in the refugee camp. And he did a really great article recently in the Sunday Times where he tracked down a load of Vietnam veterans that were photographed with Don McCullen and he found out where they were. And he tried to find mm-hmm. the US Marine in Hue, the shell shock, the iconic photograph. But unfortunately, unfortunately he didn't mind, to, to, didn't uh, actually get him. So what are you doing, Kev, this week then? Mine's the uh, the Forgotten Highlander and it's Alistair Urquhart. Hopefully I've said that right. No, um, totally wrong. Urquhart. Urquhart. God. There you go. Thank you. Urquhart. Thank you for your help, Colin. I'll do the translating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't forget the mute button next time when you're trying to talk. <laughs> and this was a remarkable story of survival during World War Two. A Scottish soldier, a young Scottish soldier, he survived the work camps. He survived being, sub- uh, being sunk at sea. Uh, he was a prisoner of war on board a Japanese uh, ship. And the Americans torpedoed it, and he did five days adrift at sea, one of the few survivors. And then eventually he was moved to a, uh, a mine near Nagasaki and survived the atomic bomb and, and witnessed it as well. Um, young soldier, talk about Ireland. bad luck. Yeah, I mean, he had a, it is a, proper, a proper story because he was captured by the Japanese in Singapore, forced into manual labour as a POW. He survived 750 days in the jungle working, as, working on the Death Railway and building a bridge on the River Kwai. He was then moved, as I say, by ship, which was then torpedoed. He survived that. He was then recaptured by the Japanese. He was taken to Japan, worked in a mine in Nagasaki a couple of months before the the dropping of the atomic bomb. And he saw that happen, and, and then he was freed, and then he was recovered back to the UK. But... An horrendous story. I mean, you know, we've talked about it before about the fourteen army, the, the, the forgotten army, and such things. And, and their war was as horrific as they can be. Sometimes not given the publicity that perhaps it should do. It the book covers a little bit about his moving to civilian life, um, but it also talked about as part of this discharge when he got back to the UK and was medically looked after. Then he was discharged. He had to sign a disclaimer to never talk about the, his treatments as a POW because I think there was some political swaying about not talking about the, 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 the treatment from the Japanese against the British. Don't know why. It, it, it's something I've never heard about before, but it, it just seems like they didn't want to have that angst against the Japanese because obviously Japan post-Second World War didn't have the same, it didn't have to capitulate in the same way that Germany did because the Americans took over, kept the emperor in place. The war trials were probably not as um, highly publicised or as, or as in-depth as probably the, the German war trials. So, uh, But it's a fascinating book. 
the the man that you makes Papillon look you know soft. He had a proper hard war you know, <laughs> as a POW. Absolutely horrendous. Okay, Lee. So thanks for coming on, mate, uh, and having a chat with us about Bosnia and Kosovo. And also thanks to the listener for your continued support and suggestions. And as normal, if you want to get in touch, our email address is at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on all those social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. So get on there, follow us and give us a write-up if you get the opportunity. Especially if you download from iTunes because that's one of the best ways of getting the uh, podcast out to the masses. We're currently working on our next guest and we've got a great podcast lined up. We can't announce it yet because he's not quite confirmed, but it'll be an absolute belter. And finally, thanks to Nick Beale for sponsoring the series and offering technical support for his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.